text is found in 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. The Word of God says, beginning in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a, to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is, uh, which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. You may be seated. Amen. Amen. It's good to see everybody. Um, so the great mystery is over. We are in 1 Peter chapter 1. Um, why don't we pray one more time and uh, then we'll jump right into this, this text, okay? Let's pray. Father, we hear the words that ring out of this passage of Scripture and we can't help but to say that we want exactly what Peter is talking about here in verse 8, where he declares that despite our trials and despite our suffering, there is a, a great joy that is afforded to us. There is joy that is inexpressible and full of glory. And Lord, we say in the midst of our suffering and in the midst of our trials, that we can go one by one in this church and we can all divulge the trials and afflictions and sufferings and the tribulations that we are going through. And yet we say, God, in the midst of that and in the context of that, we want inexpressible joy. Joy full of glory. Glorious joy, in other words. We want to be able to emanate this joy, to glory in this joy, to rejoice over this joy, and to have this joy affect us in the midst of our trials because we want to be the fragrance of Christ. We want to shine forth the goodness that we have tasted even in the midst of our trials, Lord, to show the world what it is that has made us to differ, that we have been imparted an indomitable joy. Thank you, Lord. We pray you would do the miracle of this in each one of our hearts as we labor through this passage of Scripture. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, 
the Lord has placed it upon my heart to take us to this text um, and really to do several messages out of this section of Scripture. Uh, and it's just so funny how that works, that I've been brought to this passage and have been meditating and just sitting and just soaking in this text. And it's not surprising that I hear people all around me quoting this text while I'm been thinking about preaching through it. And it's just, you know, you can see that as just coincidence or you can see it as confirmation. I chose to see it as confirmation. So we will look at what I've entitled quite simply so that we'll never forget what is Pastor Emilio preaching about, the hope of heaven. The words don't need any help. They don't need any gymnastics. They don't need any linguistical help. They don't need any further adjective than that. Because if we feel the full weight of what we just uttered, the hope of heaven, then we'll know that what we're talking about is something so glorious, so illustrious, something so infinitely beautiful and infinitely glorious that we don't need to describe it in any other way. The fact that we have hope separates us from billions of people on planet earth. Just that fact that you and I have hope that we do not at a funeral rejoice as, uh, or weep as others weep, that we don't mourn as others mourn, that we don't grieve as other people grieve, but that we have a hope that goes beyond the grave. A hope of heaven. And what is heaven but the unleashing of God's unmitigated glory and grace lavished upon your soul for all eternity? And upon that, it is not just that, but it is also this, that God will give you the capacity and the ability not only to see his glory, but to enjoy his glory for all eternity. Because right now, you don't have that capacity Something has to happen for you to even have the capacity to receive the glory and the goodness and the grace of an infinite being, an almighty being, and poured out in your heart, in your soul. That is glorification. You have to go from these perishable bodies, you have to go from these mortal bodies, these tents, as Paul calls them, into immortality, into imperishable physicality in order to be able to bear the glory of God. And God will do this. This is the hope that we have. God will do this. Turn with me to Romans chapter 8, please. Romans chapter 8. One of the reasons why Romans 8 is so precious is because many of you have memorized the verse, Romans 8, 28. All things work together for good, right? For those that love God and are called according to His purpose. But the good news goes on because as Romans 8 begins to unleash this, this, uh, this sequence of redemption, he begins in verse 29 that whom God foreknew, those He predestined. And the ones that He predestined, He calls, verse 30. And the ones that He calls, He justifies. And the ones that He justifies, this is our hope. He glorified. And I want you to see that there. 
brothers and sisters, because this is for us to enjoy the grammar of Scripture. In order to see the greatness and the grandeur of Scripture, you have to know something of the grammar. Notice what Paul says. Those whom he justified, he also will glorify. No, that's not what it says. Those whom he justified, he also might glorify if they do X, Y, and Z. No, that's not what it says. This is what is so scandalous about this verse. And that if you don't study the doctrine of soteriology correctly, you may twist to your own destruction and end up in an antinomian sort of position. But it is so scandalous, so glorious, so immense, he uses a past tense verb. He says, he also glorified, past tense. Now, this is the thing. Paul was yet to be glorified, right? I mean, he was writing this at a time where he still lived on earth. But what Paul is saying is the redemption of God works this way, that it is so certain, it is so absolute, it is so matter-of-fact that we can speak of it in past tense. He glorified us meaning it will happen with that much certainty. Isn't that hope that as certain as you are justified, you have been glorified? Well, this is exactly what Peter is building on. And I think we need to hear this message of hope today, not just because we're in a flu season. That's part of it. That's a big part of it right now, I'll be honest with you. It just seems like everybody's sick all the time. There are, there are physical issues in our church. There are people that are sick. I think of our sister Jelena and what she's going through. I think of the trials in my own life. I think of the trials in your life. I think of the things that are happening in your physical body that are complicating life here on earth right now for you. Think of the things that keep you up at night, that make you worry. And I think what we need right now is a shot of hope. That's what we need. We need a shot of the hope of heaven in our souls. And if you're not there, let's say you're not there right now. Life's going pretty good right now. Things are okay. There's plenty of money. No one's sick. There's nothing on the horizon that is making you anxious. Let Jesus make you anxious then. John 16, because partly why I chose to preach on the subject of the hope of heaven is because of the certainty of suffering. The certainty of suffering. Churches need to preach much more about the certainty of suffering in their churches. But uh, just uh, in a way that just baffles me, in a breathtaking way, pastors want to hide suffering from their people. They just want to preach good news, good news, good news, good news. They just want to preach inspirational messages and talk about how great God wants your life to be when it is God Himself who promises suffering in this world. And as a result, a great spiritual immaturity ensues. But John 16, says this. You know this verse. These things I've spoken to you, so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation. In other words, don't look for peace in this place. You ain't going to find it. But take courage, or maybe for our illustration today. Take hope. I have overcome the world. That's the way that Christian suffering works. It, does, it is not complete suffering theology until it has reached 
Christ. You have not understood suffering rightly until you come to Christ. In Acts 14, verse 21, he says, after they had preached the gospel in that city, Acts 14, 21, he said, they made many disciples. They returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, saying, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. That's not what they said. They said, it is through many tribulations, philipsis, the word literally means to crush, to crush. It's like, come on, Paul, get a little positive, you know, it's trendy, you know, inspire people. Don't talk about suffering and death and don't talk about the bad things we all have to go through in this life. Paul says it's through many tribulations, we can say many crushings that we will enter the kingdom of God. That's the way God's designed it. We all have to jump on the Calvary road, take up our cross and walk with him. Scripture says that we have suffered with him, we will reign with him, but not in the reverse order. You will not, as Paul says, begin to reign before you suffer. You will not. In 1 Thessalonians, to take this home to the apostle Paul, Paul says emphatically, uh, of himself and of his associates, of his ministers, of the apostles themselves. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 2, that this is what God had ordained for them, for their life. This is their lot in life. Don't look for a better one. If this is what God has for you, he says, we sent Timothy, our brother, God's fellow worker, in, in the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and to encourage you, to encourage your faith, so that no one would be disturbed by these afflictions, i.e. the afflictions Paul and his people are going through. For you yourselves know that we have been destined for this. We have been destined for this. For indeed, when we were with you, we kept telling you in advance that we were going to suffer affliction, and so it came to pass. Exactly as God had assured Paul that he would suffer, as Agabus had assured him, as the Spirit had assured Paul that in every city there would be suffering, there would be a new crushing. And doesn't that describe every season of our life, every year, a new challenge, every season? With every child, there's a new sickness, every sphere of life, there's a new wave of depression and discouragement and trial and distress and anxiety. So my reasons for focusing on this theme have everything to do with my life, your life, and just the blank reality of suffering. There's suffering everywhere. If you have eyes to see, you'll see it. There's suffering everywhere. We're surrounded by it. Sickness, hardships, all kinds, physical, medical, financial, marital, familial, emotional, psychological, you name it. We're going to suffer. The question is, is how will you suffer? I mean, one problem in the family can just bring you to a place you don't want to be. One dysfunctional event, one dysfunctional sin, one dysfunctional member of your family can bring you to a place you don't want to be. And the question is, will you be ready? One of the things that's so encouraging about our trials is you know well is that our trials are 
designed to strengthen us. They are designed to purify, to cleanse, to sanctify, to make us more like Christ. I'll give you one example. Let's go back to a book. Maybe you don't remember this book. It's 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 1. Probably thinking in your mind, man, are we ever going to leave this book? 2 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 8. You know this. This is Paul here again recounting his life of suffering. <clears throat> For we don't want you to be aware. By the way, don't be surprised when you read Paul's life and say, man, suffering. This is what it means to be an apostle. You're an apostle. It's just suffering after suffering after suffering. You will do well to remember Acts chapter 9, verse 15 and 16, that Jesus there told Paul explicitly that in order for him to be put in the ministry, in order for him to be his representative, his ambassador, he would have to show him how much he would have to suffer. So suffering is no surprise for the life of Paul, but it also extends to our life. But look at what it did in Paul. He says, I don't want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came upon us at Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. There is no power in doctors after a while. There is no power in medicine. There is no strength in what you can do and all the remedies and all the things you can do online to search what's wrong with you. There is that one point in time where God will make it abundantly clear to you that your only hope is to put your hope in Him, in God, who heals everybody who hopes in Him. That's not what he says. You see, beloved, part of Christian hope is not hope that begins and ends in this life. It is an eschatological hope. It is a hope that is eternal. It is a hope that is heavenly. It is a hope that is in the heavenly realms. It is a hope in God who raises the dead, which means our hope is that when we die, so accept it, embrace it, unless the Lord comes. But by and large, there's a really good chance you're going to die. You're going to pass through the portal, the valley, the shadow of death. And if you don't have a shepherd there by your side to walk you through, I don't know what you're going to hope in. I don't know what you're going to hope in. I know that the greatest thing that can happen in the midst of our trials is that we become more sober about eternity. We live in such a, such a non-sober, how do you say it? You, we live in such a world that is so inebriated by culture, by drugs, by the way things are. Um, nobody's sober about life. So it's so amazing to me to see when you're in an evangelistic encounter and you're talking to somebody who's lost and you're trying to reach them and you're trying to, 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 to really beseech them, you're, you're pleading with them and just how quickly and how just unconsciously they throw their soul to the wind. As Jesus said, what will a man give in exchange for his soul? People will give very little, as a matter of fact, 
people will sell their birthright for a bowl of soup. So I'm hoping that as we pour over all of these texts, that we will become sober. This is Peter's conclusion, if you're back in 1 Peter. After he goes through this, he comes to verse 13 and he says, Therefore, on the basis of all these things, you see sober, or excuse me, you see suffering and the place that it has in God's redemptive history, God's redemptive work leading all the way to Christ as predicted in the prophets. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Look at this. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And people say, oh, what good is that going to do? At the revelation of Jesus Christ is just another way of speaking of the parousia, the second coming of Christ. To say, keep what? Your hope fixed completely at that final gracious gift that God will give you at the coming of Christ when he comes to you or you go to him. Either way, when he appears, when he is revealed, when he is manifested at Jesus Christ, fix your hope there. Glorification. Peter is, historically speaking, or just exegetically speaking, Peter is uniquely qualified to teach us about trials. If you do any work on the background of the letters of Peter, you'll come to find out very quickly that the people that he is writing to are suffering. And they're suffering in a very unique way. They are suffering persecution. They're suffering at the hands of their countrymen. But the whole issue of suffering in general is for us. And so I thought in order to begin, what does it mean to put our hope in heaven? Or what does it mean to really truly have a heavenly hope? Then we need to dissect these verses and extract all of the principles here. And so number one, the hope of heaven begins with true salvation. It has to begin there, right? Look at verse 3 one more time. This is where we're going to spend the bulk of our time. Verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And so heavenly hope begins with genuine salvation. Because for far too many people, they have no hope of heaven because they have no salvation. There's no hope of glorification because there is no justification either. Peter knows that. His message of hope for those who are suffering begins by having them understand and having them reflect on the nature of true salvation. True salvation. So, we have to start with genuine salvation in order to arrive at genuine hope. Genuine hope. We have to feel the full weight of the plight of the wicked in order to see the glorious destiny of the righteous. You remember Psalm 1, right? Psalm 1 says, Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment. In other words, they will stand condemned. Standing is a, a posture of affirmation, confidence. It's a posture of stability and 
The psalmist says the wicked will not stand in the judgment. They will have no confidence, in other words, in the day of judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. And so people, they don't have salvation. They have no hope. It is so glim. It is so dismal. It's so, it is so terrible. I can't even... I can't even, I grope for the language to describe the horrible, terrible plight of the wicked. They are in the worst situation they could ever be in. Their lives are on red alert. They're in a house that's burning to the ground and they are unconsciously living and going about their day as if everything is hunky-dory, everything is okay, life will go on and on and on. But the reality is it's not. There is impending doom to those who do not do good. Romans chapter 2 says, only judgment and fury await. 2 Timothy chapter 2 is a very relevant text to bring out for us and to show and to make apparent and to manifest to us what is the depth of the dilemma of the wicked. That they are actually enslaved. That they are actually in a miserable condition. Misery. True misery. Without even knowing it. It's like a person with cancer. The cancer has gone too far. And they don't even know it. The reality is, is that they are in a miserable condition. But they don't know it because they haven't seen the x-rays, the MRIs, they haven't seen the test results, they haven't had the doctor explain it all to them, so they don't even believe it, and as far as they're concerned, it's not even a reality in their mind. I mean, I had a friend, his name was Kevin. He was about my age at the time, I mean, if he was alive, he'd still be my age, but <laughs> he was about 26, 27 years old, and one day he was in a grocery store, and he fainted, and he collapsed. And just a week before that, he and I were playing basketball together and, you know, elbowing each other down in the low post and, you know, having a great time rejoicing in the things of the Lord. And all of a sudden, Kevin, without even knowing why or how, he just collapsed in the grocery store and died about three months later because he had cancer and he didn't know it. That quick it will happen. That quick. Deuteronomy says their foot will soon slip. It will slip just when they least expect it. It's a terrible, dreadful condition. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24 says, The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness, correcting those that are in opposition. If perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth, verse 26, and that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil. I tell you what, when Kevin walked that first time, when he walked into that doctor's office and they explained to him, look at the leukemia, it's undeniable. He came to his senses. And so that's what we pray for everyone who is, according to this text, in the snare of the devil they are being held captive by him to do his will, to do his bidding. This is the opposite. That's why you want to know what the book of Psalms is about? 
The book of Psalms is about the life of the righteous or the life of the wicked. And those who are righteous do the will of God. Those who are wicked do the will of the devil. And as Jesus said, you cannot serve two masters. And so for in, or, for, for, in order for us to understand the nature of true salvation, we have to unpack this and begin with this first point, that genuine salvation is a sovereign act of a merciful God. It does no good for you to have a faulty view of salvation because then your hope is faulty or may be faulty. And so we have to see salvation for what it really is. And that's why I say the very first thing to note is that the hope of heaven begins with true salvation, true salvation. As we begin to think about genuine salvation, we have to define it, what it is, its nature, its effects, what it looks like. And the very first thing that we begin with is God. And that is to say that salvation is of the Lord. Salvation is God's idea. God stands sovereign, supreme over the whole realm of salvation. As Jonah 2.9 says, salvation is of the Lord. Psalm 3.8 says, salvation belongs to the Lord. Psalm 35, verse 3 says, draw also the spear and the battle axe to meet those who, are, who pursue me. Say to my soul, I am your salvation. In Isaiah 43, 11, it says, I, even I, the Lord, there is no other Savior besides me. Salvation is found in no other name. Salvation is God's idea. It is not the evangelist's idea. Salvation is God's idea. It's not the missionary board's idea. Salvation is it, it originated in the eternal recesses of the mind of God for all eternity. This is why salvation is part of God's plan, not our plan, God's plan. Salvation is on the basis, therefore, of God's power, not our own power. It is accomplished for His purpose. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 6, 12, and 14. Salvation is also found in His presence and not ours. And the reason I say that is that you are to find salvation in God and not in self. In other words, you will never be saved looking within. Look to yourself, as pop modern psychology would tell you. You have the answers within yourself. There's a little Christ inside of every one of us. You have all the power that you need to better yourself, reform yourself, do good for yourself. Miserably corrupt and bankrupt of all goodness, man can never do anything to save himself. As the word of the Lord says, no quicker can a leopard de de uh, remove his spots than a man can remove his own sin. It is just not in your nature. It is not in your ability. It is not in your grasp. And I see this so beautifully depicted in the Garden of Eden, don't you? The first sin, our parents, when they sinned and were banished, God put an angel, a, 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 I think it was a cherubim, in front of the, of the tree of life, guarding it with a weapon, with a weapon to say we will prosecute transgressors. And if you step forth and take that which is not yours, you will die. God will judge in the same way that Adam and Eve could not return to an Edenic state on their own. 
neither can you and I save ourselves. So what does it look like, therefore, to look for salvation outside of yourself? Turn to Philippians chapter 3, verse 8. Salvation, my dear friends, is the, is the abandonment of all hope in yourself. Salvation is a, a complete looking away from self. You're not looking into the, soul, the well of your own soul, looking for answers. You come to the conclusion, and that by God's grace, that the answers reside not in yourself, outside of yourself altogether. Philippians chapter 3, verse 8 and 9 says, more than that, Paul says as he's reflecting on the Judaizers, these, these false teachers that were looking to themselves, like so many people today, looking to their own religious deeds to say, this will save us, this will make us acceptable in the sight of God. Paul says, no, I count everything as loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. You walk out of the door of this church thinking in your mind, there is infinite value in knowing Jesus Christ. And I hope that God haunts you with that to the point where you walk out and you say, those people know Jesus Christ. I don't know Jesus Christ. I am deprived of the most valuable thing in the universe. And I will not go home, and I will not turn on my car, and I will not go to the restaurant until I know that I know Jesus Christ. Look away from yourself, dear friend, and look only to Christ. He's, there is surpassing value in knowing Him, whom I suffer the loss of everything. I count them but rubbish. I love that about salvation, don't you? A supernatural ability to transcend everything that this world offers you. To rise above it and look over the landscape and the wasteland of everything that the world can offer you. And say, rubbish, money, sex, drugs, wealth, possessions, houses, cars, family, heritage, upbringing, rubbish, rubbish, because all of those things piled on top of each other will not get me one inch closer to heaven. The Tower of Babel is God's forever declaration to say, man, you can build the biggest skyscraper you want. You are still in an infinite chasm between you and me. And the Tower of Babel was a, a building, an ancient building, where at the top it was known as the gate of heaven. And we know, of course, who is the doorway to heaven. And it's not found in man's doing and man's building and man's apparatus and man's edifices. It is only found in the door. Jesus, enter in through the door. That's why Paul or Peter here stresses the sovereign mercy of God. God is rich in mercy, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4, and we have to stress that. That is, as dark and dismal as the plight of man is, in the same fashion, my dear friends, God is rich in mercy. He will save the vilest offender after a life of, of, of just whoredom 
a life of unfaithfulness, a life of lies, a life of deception, a life of blasphemy, a life of stealing and thieving and conniving and manipulating. God will save. Jesus said, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And so you have to see that you're a sinner. You have to confess. But if you're like the publican who said, or the Pharisee uh, in, the, in the parable of the publican and the Pharisee, the Pharisee went to the temple and said, oh Lord, thank you that I'm not like this wicked person over here. Thank you that I, you know, I am at least a religious person. And the publican came to the temple and it says there in Luke 18, he could not even lift his eyes. He was so riddled with shame and guilt. Jesus said, I tell you the truth, that man is justified, not that man. That person that owns their sin sees their misery and sees how condemned and black their sin is and is so filled, overwhelmed with shame, they can't even lift their eyes to heaven. I can't even pray. I can't even go into a church. I feel guilty. I would say is good. See your guilt for what it is that is infinitely worse than you can ever imagine in the eyes of a holy God. And then cry out to God to have mercy on you as that publican did. He beat on his chest and said, God, have mercy on me. I am the sinner which I think meant something to him like the greatest of all, right? John Calvin was called the theologian. Okay, well, he was the sinner. You know what I mean? He was the sinner. He was, a, he was a, the worst of the worst. And so God has to have a sovereign, merciful act in order to cause us. Look at the verse there in verse 3. He causes us to be born again. Very interesting phrase. It doesn't happen very often in the New Testament. This word here, cause to be born again. Probably the more literal way you can put it is re-begetting. In other words, it stresses not the idea that you have been born again. It stresses the idea of the one that gave birth to you. As it says in James chapter 1, Verse 18, God brought us forth, and that word is gave birth to us. He gave birth to us. And here Peter is saying it is according to his mercy, and it's sovereign because it is monergistic. Monergistic means that God alone is at work, mono, mono only, uh, 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 synergy or, or energy, right? I'm using the, I'm trying to avoid the Greek words, but you know what it means? It means to work alone. And so God alone causes the new birth. You're going along life, and then something happens where all of a sudden you believe. All of a sudden you want to know the Lord. And where did that come from? Did you eat something this morning that you didn't eat before? Are you smarter than the neighbor next door? You kind of figured things out and he's still in the dark? No. According to the Bible, God has caused you to be born again. The greatest example of the new birth is this. Lazarus in the tomb. John 11. 
Lazarus is in the tomb, and according to John chapter 11, he repeats the phrase four times. Lazarus is dead. Four times in the, in the text. Dead, 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 dead. How many times does someone have to say something to emphasize dead? What can a dead man do? Well, according to his sisters, he stunk. That's what he could do. He's so dead, it says, he stinketh. They're trying to honor Jesus, their teacher, and say, oh, no, teacher, don't go in there. He stinks. You don't want to smell a dead body. So what Jesus does is he imparts life to Lazarus. Can a dead man hear? No. So he has to become alive before he hears. In the same way, just like Lazarus, you and I cannot obey the commandment, repent and believe in the gospel, unless God first gives us life so that we can hear the commandment and respond to the commandment. That's two activities, by the way. You're hearing and now you're responding. Those two things are brought forth out of the sovereign mercy of God that caused us to be born again. And genuine salvation, therefore, is not just rooted in the sovereign mercy of God. It also, it also produces genuine hope. And I fix, our, I fix our attention on the phrase, a living hope, a living hope. He caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Our hope is alive, and that itself is a sermon, isn't it? Our hope is not dead. Our God is the God of the living, not the dead. Our, our hope is alive for many reasons. Let me give you a few. Number one, it's alive because our hope is a living hope. It's not a dead hope. In other words, what can a dead hope do? Nothing. And secondly, it is a living hope because it is rooted in the indestructible life of Jesus Christ. This is very important and pay very close attention here because Hebrews chapter 7 verse 16 says, our salvation, our covenant status exists because of this one principle, an indestructible life. There is a life force, source, person. There's a living person who cannot be destroyed, cannot die. He cannot be done away with. His, his days will never end. It is eternal, fixed. It is sure. It is concrete, unending. And that life is the reason you have hope. Because it's not based on your life. Your life's going to end. So someone's got to bring you back to life. And it is based on the principle of the indestructible life of Jesus Christ. I mean, think about it. When you're tempted to lack hope or not have hope, what you should be asking is, where's my hope? Why don't I have hope? What can I hope in? What you should be asking is this. Does Jesus live? Does he live? Are you ready to apostatize and say that he doesn't live? Are you ready to deny your confession and say that Jesus is not alive right now, reigning over the universe, exalted to the right hand of God, that he lives, he really, really lives, and because he lives, you have hope today. If he wasn't alive, you'd have no hope. 2 Corinthians 13, 4 says, for indeed he was crucified because of weakness, Jesus 
He lives because of the power of God. For we are also weak in Him, our life in union with Christ. Even though we are in union with Christ, we still suffer. And how many can you testify to that? Raise your hands. Do you suffer? I suffer in my union with Christ. But that suffering does not undo the principle that we live with Him because of the power of God. Oh, great! I know one thing for sure. The power of God is at work in Jesus Christ. Undeniable, right? When it comes to me, oh, I don't know, I question everything. But when it comes to Jesus, I cannot question that Jesus has life, that the power of God resides in him. And if that is true, oh, my dear friend, if that is true, then that means your hope is unshakable, unbreakable. It is certain it is not contingent on your joy. It is not contingent on whether or not you had a good day today. It is not contingent on whether or not your house just burned down or the doctor just gave you some bad news or you lost your job or you're not going to make your bills this month. It is not contingent on any of that. It is a sure hope. Romans chapter 5 says it's a hope that does not disappoint. Never, never, never. Everything disappoints in this life, right? I mean, look at healthcare. <laughs> you talk about disappointment. I mean, five million people, I mean, not to get all political here, but five million people all of a sudden find out you have no healthcare, by the way. <laughs> what? I've been paying thousands of dollars into this thing, and now it's completely disappointed me. A good friend of mine, just an uh, older gentleman that... Um, I've been friends with for some time now, uh, had been living on his retirement, and thought his 401k, and thought all that was solid, and, you know, was doing really good for himself. Well, his retirement ran out, unexpectedly. His checks stopped coming, and he was in distress, and he was, by the grace of God, hoping in God, because that is the only thing he can hope in. But our hope does not disappoint. That's what makes our hope different from the world. And the third thing about our hope is not just that it's not a dead hope, not just that it's the hope that resides in the living, in the life of Christ, but it's also the third thing. It's a living hope because we hope not simply in the resurrection of Christ, but in our own resurrection. We hope one day that we will be raised Oh, we're way too earthly-minded, folks. We are, way too, we are way too earthly in this world. I mean, we just don't think beyond here. We really don't believe eternity is coming. We really don't have an eternal perspective sometimes. I mean, we really believe we're just going to keep living and living and living. But it's not going to happen. But we have this great promise. 1 John chapter 3 Verse 2, we have this great promise. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We will know that when He appears, or we know that when He appears, we will be like Him. That's speaking of Jesus, His appearing. His appearing is His coming, because we will see Him just as He is and everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he 
is pure. We have this hope of resurrection, glorious, glorious. When you go to Israel, what an amazing living parable, right? But we have a hope better than this. But you go to Israel, you go to the Sermon of the Mount, or you go to the, 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 the Mount of Olives, and you look down over the Temple Mount, and what do you see? Graves, hundreds of them. And you come down the Brook Kidron this way, and you're looking at Muslim graves, waiting for Muhammad to resurrect them when he returns. And then you start going up this way, and you see Christian graves, Christians awaiting the return of Christ to resurrect them before he enters the eastern gate. My friends, we don't need to be buried on the Mount of Olives. We need to have our hope firmly fixed on Jesus Christ, who will purify us if we have our faith in him. The third thing is that genuine salvation is based, therefore, on the work of Christ. It is based on the work of Christ. And this, this, this reference to the resurrection, when he says a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, that is just to, to magnify that our hope is based on the work of Christ. And guess what? If it is based on the work of Christ, then it is not based on your work it is based on the merits of Christ, then it's not based on your merit. No amount of tithing, giving to charity, no amount of church attendance or evangelism. And the reason I mention evangelism or any other religious duty, prayer, reading, studying, preaching, nothing. I can be a pastor until I'm blue in the face. It will not add one ounce to my righteousness. My hope is not in that I'm a pastor. My hope is that Christ did the work for me and that my righteousness is not my own. It is imputed to me freely by His grace. Isn't it amazing that when Martha, let's go back to John 11 quickly here, at least in our minds, that when Martha was filled, here's a woman that has been told that your son is going to die and there is a man that can raise him from the dead, but he didn't come and therefore he died. And John is careful to point out that Jesus got the news, Lazarus, your friend, the one that you love is dying, Lord. And then the next verse says, Jesus stayed right where he was at for two more days. What? He stayed you would have thought it would have said, and he ran quickly to Lazarus to help his friend whom he loves. You see, it was all to produce this lesson for us, that when Martha saw Jesus coming and ran to him and probably fell at his feet and cried out and said, Lord, if you had only been here pulling on his garments and saying, Lord, if you were just here, this wouldn't have happened. And... Jesus pointed to his life, not to Lazarus' life. She was overwhelmed by her loss, and Jesus points to his indestructible life as that which should have brought her comfort. He didn't even say, be comforted. Lazarus one day will be resurrected. Notice that Jesus says, Jesus said to her, this is John eleven twenty five, 25, I am am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. Even if he dies. You want to cheat death? So many people are trying to cheat death, right? You see it everywhere. You see it in plastic surgery. 
You see it in the vain imaginations of rich people. I mean, uh, recently I saw uh, a video with uh, an inventor. Uh, he's also uh, a CEO for, or, or he works for, at least for Google. His name is Kurzweil, and he's a genius. Uh, Bill Gates once said that he is the most incredible person of predicting future things, future technologies. And Kurzweil is saying that he is trying to invent, <laughs> this is real now, don't laugh, but he's trying to invent biotic cells that will enter into our bloodstream one time, tiny little cells that will go into our bloodstreams, fight diseases on our behalf, kill cancerous cells, and grant us longevity. <laughs> so if you want to raid around for those bionic cells to arise, to be invented, I would venture to say that no matter what man does, he will never be able to cheat death. Not even if he invents little technologically advanced cells and injects them into his bloodstream and tries to advance or enhance his longevity. It will never work because the soul that sins will die. But Jesus says this marvelous statement. He answers the question in Job. Job says, if a man dies, will he live again? Jesus says, if you believe in me, you will live even if you die. There could be nothing greater than that, even if you die. Lastly, and quickly, therefore, genuine salvation, because we're looking at true salvation, genuine salvation produces genuine praise. This is important. So if you're tired, you're tempted to check out, don't do it. Follow with me quickly and go back to verse 3 at the beginning to recall how Peter begins this entire section. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be God. Why? Bless Him. It's a doxological statement. Bless Him. Why? Because He's the Father? Yes. Because He's the Father of Jesus Christ? Yes. But also because He saved us in this way. According to his great mercy, the word kata means this is the way God did it. So in other words, it's a celebration of the way God saves us. It's not just enough to say God is a Savior. Yeah, 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 yeah. Hallelujah. Bless the Lord. God is a Savior. But it's important to bless the Lord in accordance or in harmony or in union or in, or, or, or in, in, in uh you know, in, consistently with how he saves us. Why do I say that? Because when we're looking at God causing someone to be born again, and we're looking at God's sovereign grace, we are tempted to think, well, I don't like the way God saves. How many people have heard that? I don't like that God is sovereign over salvation. Why doesn't he save everyone? And not just those whom he will save. Why, does it, why isn't universalism taught in the Bible? The idea that God will save everybody, man, woman, and child that has ever lived or ever will live. Why does it have to be that some will be lost? And this is where your theology will be determined. Will you have a man-centered view of Scripture where God does everything to uphold your autonomy 
your humanness, your human glory, your perspective or your worldview, or does God do everything to uphold His own marvelous glory? Well, it's not a question really. It's what the Bible teaches. God does, Psalm 115 verse 3, God sits in heaven and does whatever He pleases. One of the reasons or one of the ways that you know if you have genuine salvation is if you love God, is there love to God? I know when I talk to people and they're stressing out about their salvation, I know when I talk to people and they're doubting their salvation or they're wondering if they're saved or they're wondering if they genuinely know God, I ask them, do you love God? Well, yeah, of course I love God. But the question, the the predicate here is important. Do you love God as He is? Or do you love an idea of God the way you want Him to be? I want God to be this merciful. You got pastors and churches all across this town and across this state and across this nation who will not love God according to who He is. What's the proof? They won't do church discipline. I mean, that may seem like a, what? That's the connection? Yes, because what you're saying is that you have a better understanding of how to run the church than God. You are more gracious than God. You're more loving than God. You're more merciful than God. Oh, the Lord, I, I know the Lord, I know it teaches in the Bible. Matthew 18 is pretty clear. We should, if a person doesn't repent, wants to live in sin, we should excommunicate them. But we can't do that in the 21st century because it'll make us look mean. We'll get a bad reputation in the community. And so my question is, do you love God as he really is? One of the things that I love about the Psalms is that the Psalms loves the whole God. They praise him for his entire attribute, everything that he is. Psalm 119, the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord, they are true and they are righteous altogether. One of the saddest things is that at times we sit as judge over God, judging what God does Judging his sovereignty, judging his judgment, judging his hell, judging his judgments, judging the, the, the fact that there, there will be election, judging his sovereignty, judging his electing love, judging his covenant love, judging his exclusivity in Jesus Christ, judging his design of marriage, judging his, his, his uh, verdict on life, judging all of these things. And we preside over God, and what we're saying is we want God to be like us. And you find this everywhere on college campus. The gay student wants a gay God. The immoral student, the fornicator, wants a fornicating God. The student that curses and cusses and blasphemes, he wants an impure God. The student that is a relativist and agnostic, he wants a relativistic God. You see, when we look down into the well of our own souls looking for God, what we get back coming at us is our own reflection. But the Bible says, God is not a man. God said, you thought I was altogether like you. I'm not. This is what it means to be God, that the fear of God is clean, pure, 
Psalm 119, verse 137. Righteous are you, O Lord, and upright are your judgments. Psalm 119, verse 75. O Lord, that your judgments are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. This boils down to our own personal experience and the way that we will see God. And so for recap, what is true salvation? True salvation is a sovereign act of God's mercy. That is the basis of it, the sovereign grace of God. And true salvation produces or affects a genuine hope, a genuine hope, not a cheap religious, you know, cliche. The man upstairs will take care of it. That is a false hope. That is a faulty theology. That is a theology that will not give you any real hope when you're lying on your deathbed. And then our genuine salvation is based on the merits of Christ, on the work of Christ, on the resurrection of Christ, which just basically means that the work of Christ is the means through which God is going to save us. And lastly, the results is that true, genuine salvation should produce true and genuine worship. True and genuine worship. We worship God for who He really is. And we don't make a theological idol in our mind, but we accept the whole God. Let's pray. Father, in order for us to have genuine hope in this world, we know that it begins with genuine salvation. And so, God, we thank you for giving us a real salvation, a real hope that is firm and solid and that is based on the merits of your son Jesus, we will live because of the indestructible life of Christ. We're so grateful, Lord, that you have so blessed us, that you acted out in your grace, in your mercy, that you chose in your mercy and your grace to save You could have let all of us perish. You could have let all of the children of Adam be damned. And you would have been just, righteous, and holy. But Lord, you sovereignly chose to have mercy. Oh God, we don't understand it. We don't. Please remember, God, that we are but dust. Please remember, Lord, we stand here confessing that we are dust. We're nothing As the psalmist declares, what is man that you are even mindful of him? And Lord, as we confess our finitude, as we confess how transient and weak and limited and fallible we are, at the same time, Lord, we confess you are infallible, you are infinite, and you are perfect in all of your ways. Father, I pray that you would... Give us a true and genuine hope and help us to know what that hope is, what it's based on, how it works, and what it should do in our lives. We bless you. In Jesus' name, amen.